So, uh, Ruth chapter 2. Uh, we're actually going to be looking at uh, chapters 2 and 3, but uh, the, the reading is going to be really from chapter 2. So we'll read the first 20 verses, uh, starting at verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Amen. May God's word uh, touch our hearts. So 
So when we come to these uh, two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, the mood is changing. Uh, The despair begins to lift. All that bitterness and depression and discouragement that uh, we learned about last week, there is a bit of a, a change that is now afoot, and that is called hope. And, uh, you know, you would have hardly have thought that was possible when we started the story. You know, when you get to the end of the, the whole event in chapter 4 and you see the joy in the family, um, you could hardly have believed if you'd spoken to Naomi in chapter 1 that, and said to her, you know, this is how things are going to pan out eventually. I don't think she would have believed you. I don't think she would ever have thought that things could possibly have changed for the better. And yet God in his grace and God in his goodness brings in hope and everything changes. Now that's, that is a real lesson for us, isn't it? If we just make a point right here at the very start. You know, it may well be at times that the situation and circumstances of our life may not change, but the thing that we do have in the scriptures is that we do have hope. And taking things from the point of view of the eternal perspective of who we are in Christ and what awaits us and all the blessings that God has promised to those that loved him, um, you know, it changes things. And there will be a change. And so we have to hold on to the hope. And that's right here as we, th- as we see things beginning to uh, develop. I think that's particularly true when we just don't take the book, the book of Ruth in isolation. I think it's important that we don't do that. Can I just remind you just to look uh, at the very first verse of chapter 1 again, where it says that in the days when the judges ruled. And so we mustn't think that these books in the Bible, you know, necessarily are sequential. The book of Ruth does not take place after the book of Judges. The book of Ruth takes place during the time of the book of Judges. A time of complete chaos. I mean, if you were just to turn back one, uh, one page and look at the very last uh, verse in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Total and complete moral and spiritual chaos and bankruptcy in the country. Everybody just did whatever they felt they wanted to do. There was nothing that governed things at all. And in particular, we see how Bethlehem, where of course the story of Ruth takes place, is affected by this situation. Now, there's a, there's a terrible situation that takes place in chapter 19 in the book of Judges. You know, completely sordid, terrible event that takes place. And if you were to cast your eye down, uh, part of it takes, uh, has to do with a woman who comes from Bethlehem. So you, you see the situation. She ends up being sexually abused. She's, she's killed in the end. And uh, at the end of the whole sordid event, you know, the, the country's actually saying, you know, we've got to do something about this. Has, has anything like this ever been seen before? You know, things, things have just reached an all-time low. And it's in that place where that woman came from, in Bethlehem, where you couldn't imagine things possibly getting any worse that this beautiful story of redemption 
plays itself out. And in the darkest place, there is a light that begins to shine. And of course, in the wider narrative of Scripture, you know, we know the importance and the significance of Bethlehem. In this dark place, you know, a few generations down the road, a wee boy is going to be running up and down the street who's going to be King David one day. And, and a few other generations and years down the road, there are going to be angels over these very fields that we're reading about in this passage. And shepherds will be in those fields, and they'll announce to them that unto you is born this day in this town, in the city of David, a Savior who is going to be Christ the Lord. And, and, and so hope is part of this story in the middle of darkness. And uh, that's what begins to dawn on, on Naomi and Ruth in these uh, couple of verses. So let's, as we read it, see Christ here. You know how uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus opened the scriptures and he spoke to these sad disciples and said, you know, in the books of Moses and in all the prophets, there are things that are written there about me. I'm sure he turned to this book and he spoke about himself from the narrative. And Christ is here and we're going to be talking uh, about that. I'm just going to be highlighting a couple of almost technical points uh, that are very interesting and uh, instructive uh, for us. Um, I want you to notice, first of all, um, that it says in the last verse of chapter 1 um, that as they returned back to Bethlehem, it was the time at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, so it's harvest time. Now we, we read that, the whole of the chapter's about them in the fields working, uh, bringing in the harvest. The point about the harvest is this. There, there was various harvests that they had in Israel. The barley harvest took place in our, our springtime. And then it runs on, actually. Um, and if you look down at the last verse of chapter 2, it talks about the barley and the wheat harvest. So the wheat harvest runs on into the summertime. And a lot of the festivals that were celebrated had to do with harvest and the, the year. And so they, 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 they had a harvest festival uh, called the, uh, the Feast of the First Fruits that they, they, they offered to the Lord. And, and so this, this is the kind of background of, uh, of what is going on there. Uh, this is the time when all of this takes place. And then there's something that happens as part of the harvest. And what happens is this, that you probably you know, picked up on this word that's, that's mentioned a number of times. For instance, in verse number 2, when Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of, of corn or of grain. Gleaning. What is gleaning? We know what harvesting is. We know what reaping is. What is gleaning? Well, I mean, this is something, this was a provision that the law prescribed for the benefit of the poor in the land. If you want to read about that, the reference is Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. And basically what it meant was this. Number one, that the people who owned the field and they had their workers, they weren't allowed to take the grain, to harvest the grain from all the way around the field. They had to leave the perimeters. And if while they were uh, reaping the stuff, 
uh, some of it fell behind them. They couldn't turn and they couldn't pick it back up again. The poor could come behind them and they could gather up what was left behind and they were allowed to take what was round about the perimeter. That was called gleaning. And that is the significance of what Ruth was doing. She was dirt poor. They had nothing. This was the only way that she could cater for herself and for her mother-in-law, Naomi, was to work in this kind of way. And of course, the law is a reflection of the character of God. It tells us something about God's concern for the poor and for the immigrant and for the foreigner, that this was prescribed by the law and tells us about God's character and his kindness. It also says something, however, about how hard Ruth was working. I don't know if you again picked up on it, but verse 7 says that she came here in the early morning, And verse 17 mentions that she was still working in the evening and she only had a short break. It also tells us what she did with the corn once she obtained it. Verse number 17 says that she beat it out. And then it said, when she waited out afterwards, it was about an ephah, which is about 22 litres worth. Now, this, um, just to give you the background, what they normally did at the end of uh, bringing in the harvest is in terms of what we read in chapter 2, verse 2, when he winnowed it, all right, and he threshed it. So you get the, the stalks and you, you thresh them. And that means you beat them with sticks or you, you got some oxen to walk over it. And that separated up the stuff that you wanted to eat from what was just chaff. And winnowing was you threw it up into the air and the wind blew away the chaff and then you were left behind with what you could eat. And that's what she had to do. She beat it out herself. She gathered it in, she beat it out, she had 22 litres and she took it back to her mother-in-law for them to eat. She was hard-working. She was hard working. That's another lesson, I guess, for all of us, isn't there? You know, whatever we do for the Lord, we've got to do it with all our heart. You know, the book of Proverbs is full of good advice for slackers. You know, we're not to be lazy. We're not to be like a creaking door on its hinges. You know, we are to look at the ant and we have to learn from the ant and be wise. You know, in being industrious and hardworking and not being uh, a slacker. Now, that that is true as far as our normal day-to-day work is concerned. That is true as far as our work in the church of Christ is concerned. You read 1 Thessalonians, and Paul had to admonish the people because a lot of them were were just waiting for the Lord to return. The Lord's going to come at any time. No point in us doing anything. Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And whatever you do, you do it with all your heart unto uh, the Lord. There is something quite interesting, actually, down in uh, verse number 3 that I'd like to just uh, point out to you. It's just a description of what happened at at the start of the day's work. It says that she set out, she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Oh, really? It just happened like that, did it? You know? 
It just so happened by accident. It was a total and absolute coincidence that she ended up in the field of Boaz. Well, of course it wasn't a total and absolute coincidence. This was the providence of God. Now, the point, of course, for us to, to just mention is this, that our times are in God's hands. You know, uh, we're not fatalistic people, but we do believe in the providence of God and that God directs even the details and the circumstances of life. And she had no idea whose field she was going into at the beginning of the day, but the, the very fact that she decided to turn left rather than turn right, you know, all of what followed after that really hinged on that particular decision. But it was God who directed our paths. And it's of great comfort to us to know that God still directs our paths uh, as well. So we've thought about the harvest. We've thought about this idea of gleaning. And of course, we're now going to come to the big one, which is the idea of, of the Redeemer. The Redeemer. Verse number 20 at the end of the day, she comes back. They chat over the details. What's going on? Whose field did you work in? It was the field of a man whose name was called Boaz. And Naomi says to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. He's one of our redeemers, our kinsman uh, redeemer. Now, uh, again, this is a provision uh, in the law of God for the people. This idea of redemption is a recognized part uh, of Jewish life. Uh, and there's one part of it in particular that is going to be emphasized in the book of Ruth, and it's going to be given a messianic uh, dimension. So redemption. So what does redemption mean? Well, in very basic terms, uh, redemption uh, means, first of all, uh, the recovery either of uh, it's the recovery of possessions or ownership by paying a price. It also carries the idea of freedom, setting free or releasing by paying a price. And this introduces a different dimension even to the idea of salvation. So we think about you know, what happens in the book of Judges, for instance, where God continually saves his people. He saves his people. He delivers them. He rescues his people. Now that idea is part of redemption. But the thing that's added into the mix when we come to redemption is the fact that that is done by the payment of a price. That's, that's the bit. It's the payment of a price that secures the release, that secures the freedom. And so this, as I say, was part of uh, Jewish society. It was understood from the law. So let me take you just to a couple of the references, just so that you kind of get, get the idea. So if you would like to turn to the book of Leviticus uh, and chapter 25... And at verse number 23, where it says, the land, okay? So this idea of redemption can uh, be related to the land. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, says God. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption 
of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. So you can see the idea. You know, the land, if he loses it, either somebody related to him or if he gets the money later on for himself he can do it, he can pay back the land and it's released back to him. So the land can be redeemed. Further down this chapter, we find that people can be redeemed. So if you look down at verse 47, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. So land can be redeemed, people can be redeemed. And in both these cases, they were redeemed with money. Money redeemed them. But God then begins to use this term, redemption, redeem, about himself and about his intervention in the affairs of people. So, for instance, if you were to go to the book of Exodus and read in chapter 6 there, God says to them, and they're in bondage, they're in slavery to to, to Pharaoh in Egypt, "I, I will redeem you. I will redeem you. And in fact, when that redemption takes place, Uh, If you turn to Exodus chapter 13, and uh, they're freed, and the freedom is secured by the payment of a price. Not a monetary price, but the price of the life of a lamb, the Passover lamb. Redemption not by money, but redemption by blood. Okay? Okay? And so what God then says to the people, very interestingly, in chapter 13, verse 13, he says, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now what does this mean? Well, we'll talk about the men first, and then we'll go on to the donkey. Now, if you look down to chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, the Lord says to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Because, of course, it was the firstborn who were not sheltered by the blood who lost their life during the Passover, at the, the, the final plague in Egypt. And so God says, because of that, all those who survived, all the firstborn, are mine. They're mine. And so every firstborn has to be redeemed. And so what happened after that was this, that every firstborn, there was a ceremony and there was a celebration. 
And that involved the killing of a lamb. And in that sense, their firstborn children were redeemed back to the family again. Now, in fact, if you go to Luke's Gospel and you read carefully the account of Mary and Joseph going to the temple with Jesus, you'll find that this point is actually being made. In Luke chapter 2, when Christ goes to the temple as a child, it's for this to take place. He was the firstborn, and Christ was being redeemed by this very ceremony. And so you see how this whole concept of redemption, the idea of it, is uh, being built up for us. And the Lord himself begins to apply it now, not just in monetary terms, but the picture is being built up, and he uses it now as far as he is concerned. And so when you get to Isaiah, some of the Isaiah passages that Mark read to us earlier, there's another classic one in chapter 43, and God speaks to the people and says, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. And God is describing himself as the redeemer of his people who are redeemed by them. And it's at this point that the book of Ruth really comes in to add something more or to develop the point a little bit further. And the idea, of course, is that the Redeemer had to be a relative. Had to be a relative. Couldn't be any Tom, Dick, or Harry. Boaz was a kinsman. He was a member of the same clan as Elimelech. And therefore, he was able to act as a Redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi. And of course, this is the big messianic point. The point is this, to quote Hebrews chapter 2, you want to read that one later, where it says about the incarnation, that when Christ came, he didn't take upon himself the nature of angels. I mean, that would be tremendous humility, wouldn't it? For Christ to step down from the throne of God and become an angel. You know, that would have been massive humiliation. He didn't do that. He took upon himself the nature of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. He became a human being. And he became part of our kith and kin. He now is related to us. He is a kinsman. And, and because he takes on humanity, he can now give himself and pay the price for humanity. And the price is not monetary. The price is not a lamb. He's going to pay the price of his own blood. But it is redemption that is going to happen. And he is the one that is going to redeem. Now there's a, there's a wonderful uh, other expression that I, I just want to bring to your attention just before we, we finish. Um, it's the idea uh, that we have uh, down in chapter 2, verse 12, where um, Boaz speaks to Ruth and says, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Okay, we can, we can picture that. It's like a, a bird sheltering the chicks under her wing. 
The interesting thing is this, that if you come down to chapter 3 and you pick up the story, and the story is this, that Ruth goes in the middle of the night and she lies at the feet of Boaz and he's startled and he wakens up. And um, at first reading, what she seems to be saying is this, extend the corner of your garment over me. But the alternative reading for that in chapter 3 Uh, And verse number 9 is, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And the idea, of course, is this, that in looking for redemption, you know, she's not just looking for the corner of his garment to be placed over her. That's a symbolic thing. She's really asking for protection. She's asking for guardianship. She's asking that she has refuge and she's, she's redeemed and freed from this terrible poverty that she finds herself in. And Boaz becomes the redeemer. But, but greater than that, it is, it is God who becomes her refuge and strength and who, who covers her with the shelter of her wing. And she takes refuge beneath the shadow of the protecting wings of God. Wonderful picture that's painted. And I think the picture goes beyond the picture of, of just a bird, actually. <laughs> uh, you might remember, and again, this is all technical Old Testament stuff, but you might remember when the tabernacle was made, uh, the central part is the Ark of the Covenant, of course. And the main part of the, the Ark of the Covenant is, is the mercy seat, beaten out of pure gold. And from that same piece of gold, there are two angelic beings, cherubim, with outstretched wings, touching each other, and they face each other. And it is on the mercy seat, under the cherubim, that God says, that is where I will meet with you. That is where I will commune with you. And so I think it goes further than just thinking it's a generic picture of a protective bird's wing that has been talked about here. I think this is talking about the very presence and protection of God himself under the the wings of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And so these are all rich with meaning as far as as Ruth uh, is, is concerned. And really her prayer is the, is the sinner's prayer when she says that. Won't you cover me? Won't you protect me? I've got nowhere to go. You're the only one who could possibly help me. I need your guardianship. I want you to redeem me. Please be my redeemer. And that is the prayer that any one of us, as we look to Christ, uh, should be making as well as we think about our need for, for redemption. A couple of implications from this. One, of course, is gratitude. I mean, she must have been enormously grateful uh, to Boaz. As we think about Christ redeeming us from our situation, not of poverty, but uh, complete destitution as far as our sin is concerned, and we think that he's redeemed us, he's taken us out of that, and he paid a tremendous personal sacrificial cost so that that could happen. How how grateful we should all be for our great Redeemer. Second thing is this, and this is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6.20. It says, you know, you're not your own anymore. 
because you've been bought with a price. Therefore, you need to learn to honor God with your bodies. We don't belong to each other. He has bought us. And that's where the famous verse in 1 Peter 1 comes in. You know, it's not been with corruptible, perishable things that you were redeemed, like silver and gold. Remember, it was with the precious blood of Christ. And as you remember it was the precious blood of Christ, then learn to live your lives, your pilgrimage, uh, with godly fear and with a sense of reverence as you appreciate the cost of your redemption. So there we have it. Having a Redeemer. Being redeemed. The great concept that's highlighted in the book of Ruth that lifts her up from the depression and discouragement and where hope begins to shine again. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for the wonderful concepts that shine out of this wonderful book and that direct us to our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to appreciate him as the great Redeemer uh, who has given so much for us. And help us to appreciate your sacred word with all these wonderful insights that point us to appreciate our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we commit ourselves to you in his name. Amen.